Our Old Testament lesson today is found in Genesis chapter 18. For the sake of ease, we will read verses 1 through 8 and then move to 16 through 33. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Then in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death while the wicked, with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
And Father, you have been gracious to us, and your promise is that you have sent your Spirit, and that in his coming, he will lead us into all truth. And so as we read of great things today, we ask that you would guide us into all truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Over the past weeks, we've journeyed through the life of Abraham, working our way from Genesis 12 and now arriving to the chapters Genesis 18 and 19. And we've seen that Abraham, though a hero of the faith and the father of a great multitude, that in him who would be a blessing to all the nations, we've seen that he is actually a very approachable character. That Abraham was not just simply a glorified saint walking the earth without weakness and struggle. But we've seen that Abraham was a man who received exceedingly great promises from God. And yet he struggled greatly and that he learned obedience and faith through the course of his sufferings. That Abraham struggled to hold fast those promises, believing that God was going to make good on them. That he struggled not to invent by his own wisdom ways of bringing out the fulfillment of all of those promises. But through the course of his life, Abraham grows and he matures as a follower of God. And this week we find in Genesis 18 a conversation taking place between the Lord and between Abraham. In Isaiah chapter 41, we are told that Abraham is the friend of God. And many, most commentators would say that it is a result of this particular passage in a friendly conversation almost one in which Abraham shows appropriate humility, but yet in which there is conversation between God and Abraham. And our passage today does require very little introduction. People only remotely familiar with the Bible tend to generally have some perception of the events that take place here in Genesis 18 and 19 with the destruction of two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. For some, these chapters are an ancient relic, speaking of an angry God who lacks compassion and who is overly fixated on sexual preferences, that, this, that these two chapters just seem out of date and somewhat irrelevant. For others, the passage is prophetic, and it warns the modern world about the dangers and the calamities that can be accompanied by same-sex sexual appetites. Both perspectives are perhaps present here today. They're prevalent in our culture. But both operate also with a superficial and insufficient take on this particular passage. Bertrand Russell, the famous British mathematician, who's an atheist, also a well-known philosopher, he once said this, in all affairs, it's a healthy thing now and then to hang a question mark on the things you have long taken for granted. And this is really what we need when it comes to Genesis 18 and 19. This is what our world also needs, is that we need to take a step back and hang a question mark on this passage and come to it all over again and ask what it is that is actually happening and what God is saying. And when we do that, what is it exactly that we'd see? And I'd suggest to you this morning that there are three things that come into focus. The first is that we see the character of God. 
The second is that we see a sketch of our world. And the third is that we see the role of a priest. And ahead of the Lord's Supper this morning, let's just take a brief look at each of these. First, we see the character of God. Genesis 18 begins in an unusual way. It's a divine visitation in verse 1. Abraham sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, and three men suddenly appear. One of them is identified as the Lord. He shows incredible amount of deference to him, and then two others as angels. Abraham extends this company hospitality, and he spreads a very lavish feast in front of them. And then after the meal, they set out for Sodom, and Abraham accompanies them to get them started on their journey. The Lord then asks an odd question in verse 17. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Many people have found this strange. It's, someone like, it's somewhat like when you're in a personal conversation and someone says to you, I don't know whether I should tell you this, but they've already made the decision. They're going to disclose what it is to you. And God, for some reason, uses this human convention. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Because he is very intent on communicating this to Abraham. And in verse 20, God discloses exactly what his purpose is. This is what he says. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so God explains to Abraham that his purpose in coming on this visit was to go to Sodom and Gomorrah to investigate. Why exactly would the God who sees and the God who knows, two things that have actually been imprinted in this very narrative from Abraham that God sees and knows all things, why does he have to go on a field trip to determine what's going on? It really is a remarkable image, actually a very human image, an outing that God takes in order to communicate to us something about his judgments. You see, this is something God does in order to help us because what he does in coming down in this theophany, God appearing to Abraham and walking among him and then sending his angels down to the cities to investigate, he communicates to us that God does not enact his judgments without knowledge, without patience, or without equity. He's showing his tender care that he exercises when he does exercise judgment. And this investigation assures us that God's judgments are never capricious, they're never rash, and they're never whimsical. That God is communicating to us something about his character and the care that he exercises. And so God is affirming that he is just but he is also absolutely patient in his justice and in all of his dealings. Now, it's easy for us in the modern world to lose sight of the good news that is present in that, that we have a just God. 
For many people, just the idea of pure and true justice just seems too far and too remote. Several years ago, when our family lived in Arlington, Virginia, I returned home from work one day and parked my car, and shortly after parking my car, I had received a parking ticket right there in front of my house. We had to park along the curb. And it was a parking ticket that was my fault. I had a license plate that was expired. I had forgotten to renew it, and so I deserved the first ticket. That first ticket was given to me at 7.30 that evening. I took the ticket inside. Next morning, I go out to drive to work, and I had received a second ticket for my license plate that was out of date. That was given to me within 12 hours. And so, filled with self-righteous fury, I get online, figuring out how I was going to contest this great injustice that had been served on me right in front of my house. And so, as I researched more, began to note that, yes, I could contest it, but I would have to go to court. I would have to set a court date. And then, after the court date, yes, my ticket could be expunged, but no matter what happened, for parking violations in Arlington County, you had to pay the court fees. And so I began to Google further, and I then learned that the court fees were more than the two parking tickets. And so I wrote my check and paid for two parking tickets inside 12 hours, thinking to myself, all this order and all of these rules, they're all helpful. They're preserving the good order of this city that I live in. But this is just bureaucracy. It's just faceless justice. There is no justice. And friends, through experience in life, as we live in a broken world where there are so many sad things, and where we know that the experience of justice is so limited and comes up so very short of actually establishing equity and right, we begin to lament and despair that it ever is going to exist. But we find here in Genesis 18 the statement that there is a judge of all the earth who's patient, who investigates, who understands, who does bring about justice because he's committed to what's right and that this is good news for a world that groans under the burden and the misery of sin and injustice and evil and wrong. But we also see that this is not all that the passage says about God. God goes down to Sodom, and we saw this particular word in verse 20. He goes to Sodom because there was an outcry. It's important to look at that term in the original, that word outcry, literally means a cry for help. And it's a cry for help in the Bible from those who are in abusive and desperate situations. That is that there's an outcry in Sodom because something's not going right in the community, in the social order of the city. The outcry is a protest of the oppressed. It is the plea of the persecuted. It is the voice of the victim rising up to heaven and God goes down to investigate because he has heard that cry. And here's the critical thing, is that God goes to exercise justice in Sodom and Gomorrah in response to his compassion. 
And this is often what's missing in the modern conversation, where we pit God's wrath and his justice against God's mercy and his compassion. But you see, in Scripture, these two actually work quite well together. That judgment and salvation are not pitted against one another, but rather in working in concert. That God hearing the cries of the dispossessed, of those who are being abused and who are desperate, the victims, he comes in to exercise justice in order to bring salvation. And so we see here a picture of the character of God that actually presses against many of our modern notions that are just impoverished in which we pit one attribute of God against another. And we're actually being asked to see that in the mystery of God, in the heights of his character, in the depths of his being, that these two qualities are absolutely fused and work together in harmony. And so here they are, harmoniously working together. And we're called to see the God of justice, the God of love and mercy, that this is our God who we serve. And so this is what we see about the character of God here in Genesis 18. Now second, we also learn something about the state of our world. Sodom needs no introduction. It's a famous city. It's important to look through the Bible and see how many times the city of Sodom and Gomorrah is actually mentioned. It turns up in Deuteronomy 29 and once again in verse 32, in chapter 32. Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 13. Jeremiah 23 and once again in chapters 49 and 50. Ezekiel 16, Amos 4, Matthew 10 and 11, Romans 9, 2 Peter 2, and Revelation 11. Sodom makes its way all the way through the canon, Old Testament and New Testament continually appearing. And when you look at that broader witness of Scripture, what we find is clear that Sodom is not just an exemplary bad city. Rather, Sodom is a paradigm. It's a paradigm that is presented to us. It's an example. It's a model of human society left unto itself. That this is what it looks like to be part of a fallen world left unto ourselves. It's not an exception. It's not that this is stated as the worst city ever upon the earth. It's the description of humanity without God. We've seen that there was this outcry, this cry for help, inspiring God to come investigate. Then in Genesis 19, we learned, we learned the particularly horrid story of when the angels go to visit and they are taken into Lot's home, that the men of the city, and there were no exceptions, the young and the old come and demand to have their way with those two visitors. They were going to violate every rule of hospitality. They were going to violate the rules of nature. They were simply going to have their way with these men to take advantage of them according to their own desires. And it's this particular event that Sodom has become famous for. But it's important to keep that event in mind and also to take the further witness of Scripture, this outcry, a broader perspective on board as well. Because in Ezekiel chapter 16, in verses 49 and 50, we see a very graphic description of this outcry, of the sins of Sodom. Listen to Ezekiel's words 
Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. Pride, decadence, prosperity, violence, negligence. The city was devoid of compassion and care. These were the sins of Sodom, along with their sexual sins and deviancy. Calvin explains it well that Sodom was not contaminated by simply one vice, but they were given up to all audacity and crime so that no sense of shame was left. And friends, this is the same story that the Apostle Paul tells in Romans chapter 1, that there was no shame left leading human beings into debaucherous sexual passions, but that that was the end of something more tragic that had happened at the beginning. And you see, all of Sodom's vices were a result of the fatal exchange of not worshiping and serving the living God and choosing to worship and serve themselves. And so if we look at Sodom as an exception, we actually miss the opportunity to look in the mirror and see the story that is being told and the way that the broader witness of Scripture actually tells the story of Sodom, that this is the city of man. That as we hear the prosperity and the violence and the negligence, suddenly it comes closer to home. When we simply cast it as one particular sin, we can keep Sodom comfortably over there. But in that broader witness of Scripture, Sodom resides very close that it's here among us. That this is the state of our world and the sadness of the place in which we live. This is part of what we are called to recognize, and it raises the question that the third part of our passage resolves. What are we supposed to do? God has come to visit Sodom. He has heard the outcry, the violence, the wickedness, the sexual deviancy. And this is where we find the final point, the role of the priest. In his conversation with Abraham, turn with me to verse 19. God has decided to disclose to Abraham, and he's explaining his rationale of why he is going to tell Abraham his secret and what his purpose is in this trip. He says, for I have chosen him, that is Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised Multiple things going on in this verse. But God justifies to the angels why he's going to share his purpose to visit Sodom. And the reasoning is critical to follow, and there's three steps that kind of unfold in this. First, God explains that he has elected Abraham. This is a reference to Genesis 12, where God has singled Abraham out and given him a purpose in the history of the world. He has a special purpose. But secondly, he explains that he's chosen Abraham and that his life is to have a certain ethical shape, 
That is, Abraham was to walk in the ways of the Lord, and he was also to instruct his children and his children's children, that they were to learn this same way, teaching them to keep the way of God, to do justice, and to serve righteousness. And then the third unfolding step is that God explains the purpose of all of this, to bring about what was promised. And what was promised in Genesis 12 and then reiterated in chapter 13 and once again in chapter 15 and once again in chapter 17 is that Abraham was going to be a blessing. His family, through him, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. All the families, the tribes and the tongues of the people were going to be blessed through him. God tells Abraham that he has this role and that he is to take it up. And then as the scene progresses, what happens is that Abraham steps into that role of righteousness and justice before God. And that strange conversation where Abraham makes six pleas and almost feels like he's haggling with God. Six times he goes back to him. What is taking place is that Abraham is exercising this role as a priest, a priest of righteousness and justice. And he is interceding and he's mediating on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 23, it says that Abraham drew near to speak to God. And that original word is an interesting one. It's important because it's often used in the Old Testament of someone who's about to deliver a legal plea. And so Abraham draws near to God, and you see all the references to his humility and the deference he shows to God as he steps on lines. He's not sure exactly where he's going, but he's asking God, if there's 50 righteous people, surely you will not wipe out that city. And God says no. God isn't being asked to do something that's not in his character or something that is outside of his desires. And then he begins to take it down by five, and it goes down further, and God continues to agree. But Abraham is making a legal plea. He's acting as a priest, interceding and mediating. And it works down. He is exploring something with God in prayer. He is asking, will you spare the guilty because of the righteous? One thing that was not contested in that world was that there was a corporate sense of responsibility for sin. Everyone in the, in the Old Testament world would have agreed with that. And so Abraham explores the other side of it. It's because there is the presence of a few righteous, can that actually, can that actually save the unrighteous? And it's this role of intercession, of mediation, of offering a legal plea that Abraham was to take up. But it was not just Abraham. It was to be his children and his children's children. This was the way of righteousness and justice that they were to inhabit, and they were to be a light to the nations and a blessing to all the families of the earth. But of course, we benefit from knowing the full story of the Old Testament, and that Israel, Abraham's children, that they didn't take up that role that they failed to be a light to the nations, that they became more like Sodom and Gomorrah than they were like Abraham in this moment. And so it's critical for us to see here in Abraham, as he takes up this role of a priest interceding, 
it's critical for us to see that there's a shadow. That yes, he was to be a model for Israel, but Israel failed. And there's a shadow of one who was coming. It foreshadows the one who comes to bring the blessing of Abraham to the nations. Because Israel didn't deliver, God didn't forsake his plans. But rather, God became an Israelite. That is Jesus. And Jesus comes as intercessor. And his prayer, the night before he gives himself up, is that God would spare him of this cup. But then he surrenders himself to God's will. And he says, not my will, but yours. And in doing so, he interceded for us, offering himself in perfect obedience to God. The one righteous person, not righteous because his sins had not been imputed against him. He was righteous in his actual actions. He was righteous by his faith and by his obedience. And he intercedes for those who are guilty. And so we find here in this shadow that we're being pointed to this great intercession and that he is the one who stands in our place and that yes, God will spare the guilty because of the righteous. That this principle holds and this principle is actually your only hope. It is your only truth in life to hold to. It is the only way of reconciliation and peace with God is because God will spare the guilty because of the righteous. And that a righteous intercessor, one who takes up your legal plea, stands today at God's right hand. This is what he does in and for you. This is Jesus on your behalf. And so not only then is he a shadow, but this Jesus, Abraham before him, also serves for us as a model. Because we're called in Jesus to also be that intercessor, that nation of priests who enter that legal plea asking for God to have mercy on his world through Jesus, the one righteous. And so we see this full-orbed role of the priest is being joined to Jesus Christ and then joining in his work of intercession. And so, friends, we need to hang the question mark. A passage that can be deeply misunderstood and abused. A passage that can be twisted to say all kinds of things. But a passage that ultimately reveals to us the glory and the majesty of God. The just God who's also filled with compassion. Who hastens to the need of the needy. Who comes to the victim's aid. Who brings justice. And in bringing justice, he brings salvation. And we see the God who lays bare the city of man. The city that you and I have participated in. All the corruption that is native to our hearts because of that fatal exchange. And that all the vices and the choices we make are a result of that fatal exchange. That yes, all those sexual preferences and choices that are made are catastrophic and dangerous and sad. But it all flows from that primary rebellion in which we've all participated because of Adam. That we wanted to be wise unto ourselves. This is the city of man. What else would we expect? But then God's answer to the city of man, the intercessor, the mediator, the priest, the priest who comes to plead, and that's who we look to. 
the judge of all the earth will certainly do what is right, and he will never forsake you in Jesus because he cannot deny himself. He holds you fast. And so let's look to him this morning in prayer.